Volume Two, Chapter Thirteen of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence. Volume Two, Chapter Thirteen. Goodbye. While Jane and Francis were discussing the state of Brandon's affections, the objects of their solicitude was going as fast as the railway could take him to Ashfield where his widowed mother lived with his unmarried sister, a confirmed invalid, and a widowed sister, Mrs. Holmes, the mother of those wonderful nephews and nieces whose ignorance on the subject of dirt-pies had so much impressed Emily Phillips. Brandon had always been very glad to go to see them, and to stay a short time, but the intolerable dullness of the place had always driven him back to London. Australians generally prefer a large town as a residence, and London most of all, for though their relatives in small country towns or rural neighbourhoods fancy that it must be so much more lively with them than it is in the bush, there is a great difference between dullness where there is plenty of work to be done, and dullness where there is absolutely nothing. Mrs. Brandon was a conscientious, and, to a certain extent, rather a clever woman, but she had many prejudices and little knowledge of the world. Mary Brandon was the most amiable and the most pious and patient of sufferers, who only got out in a bath-chair, and received a great deal of care from her mother, while Mrs. Holmes devoted herself to her children, with a fidelity and an exclusiveness that made her influence elsewhere almost infinitesimal. All of them loved Walter dearly, and were very anxious that he should be married, most disinterestedly, for their circumstances were straitened, and but for Walter's assistance, which had been given wherever he could possibly afford to do so, they would have found it difficult to make ends meet. Mr. Holmes had been unfortunate in business, and the widow had sacrificed part of her jointer, and the invalid sister as much of her little fortune, as was at her own disposal, to assist him in his difficulties. Their generosity had the usual result of only delaying the crash for him, and of finally impoverishing themselves. One most promising brother had died at the close of a long, expensive professional education, which he had expected to turn to great account for the benefit of his sisters. Walter himself had been sent out to Australia in his father's lifetime, with a better capital than could have been given afterwards, so that he always considered that he had got more than his share, and that his assistance was nothing at all generous. The young Holmeses were taught and guarded by their mother night and day. She accompanied their walks, she overlooked their games, she read all their books before giving them to the children to read, and cut out or erased anything that she thought incorrect in fact or questionable in tendency. She allowed no intercourse with servants, and almost as little with playfellows of their own age. And when Uncle Walter from Australia came first to disturb the even tenor of their way, by lavish presents of sweetmeats, cakes, and toys, and by offers to take the whole family to every attainable amusement, he was first reasoned with, and then as he was not convinced, he was put down, his gifts returned, and the children instructed to say that they would rather not have the treats he offered. He certainly preferred the wild spirits and rebellious conduct of the little Phillipses, even in their worst days, to the prim good behaviour of his own nephews and nieces. He had the pleasure of telling Mrs. Holmes on this occasion that the wild young Australians had been reduced to something like order by an admirable governess whom he had been the means of procuring for them, that in spite of all the overindulgence she had suffered from, Emily was proving a very tolerable scholar, that she had good abilities and an excellent heart, though she did climb on his knee for comfits, and beg to be taken to Astley's. Mrs. Holmes wondered at his procuring a governess for the children, 
and asked a good deal about her, with a view of ascertaining if her brother was fixed at last. But he talked about her with a perfect nonchalance, saying that she was a particular favourite of an old servant of his called Peggy Walker, and that her account of Miss Melville's qualifications was perfectly satisfactory, as the result had proved. Mrs. Holmes was bewildered as to the curious social relations of Australian people, but her mind was set at rest about Jane Melville. "'But Fanny,' he said to his sister, "'you know I have come to bid you good-bye in a week or ten days. I cannot help it. Things look so badly just at present, that unless I am on the spot I cannot see my way at all clearly. I have little doubt that I will work things all right again. The master's eye makes all go well. There need be no difference in the little allowance I send to my mother and you. That will be sent home regularly as before. But I want to assist you otherwise if you will allow me to do it. You have enough to do to bring up those six children of yours, even with my little help. I will take your boy Edgar with me. As I am not going overland, it will not be so expensive. I will train him to be useful to me, and make a man of him. No, no, Walter, I could not let him be away from under my own eye. He is so young. His education is not finished, said Mrs. Holmes. And never will be, if you keep him always at your apron-string. You cannot do it, Fanny. You must turn him into the world some day, and surely he will be better turned out under my guidance than under none at all. Why, the lad is sixteen, and though he is uncommonly ignorant of the world, he knows enough of books and that sort of thing to acquit himself very fairly in Australia. I promise to do my very best for him, and he can be of great service to me soon, if he has only a head on his shoulders. And though it is very hard to find out what your children are fit for, I dare say the boy has average intelligence. "'Average intelligence!' exclaimed Mrs. Holmes. "'His memory is admirable. If you would only examine him in history, or geography, or Latin, or scientific dialogues, or chronology, you would find—' "'That I do not know the tenth part of what he does, no doubt,' said Brandon. "'But that is not what will make him get on in the world. You cannot afford to give him a profession.' "'I fear not. I wish I could. Perhaps I might, by more economy. The education of my children has cost me very little hitherto, only the classics and mathematics from the curate. I should like to bring Edgar up for the church.' "'But, my dear Fanny, if you were to give him a profession, you must send him away from you. If I take him I will do my utmost to get him on, and I really will look after him, and keep him out of mischief, better than you can do at a public school or a university. Oh, Walter, you know what a state Victoria is in, full of runaway convicts and all sorts of bad characters, attracted there by the gold-diggings. I should not like Edgar to meet with such people. At my sheep-stations he will see little or nothing of these people, I will keep him busy, and by and by, when he comes to man's estate, I will give him a start, and if you think I succeed with Edgar, I will take Robert, too, when he is old enough. I know, Walter, that you mean very kindly by me and mine, but I do not care so much for my boys being rich, or getting on, as you call it. I want them to be good. I do not wish to throw them into the world till their principles are fixed, and strong enough to withstand temptation. Edgar is very young, and you are not firm enough to have the guidance of him. I can be firm enough on important things, said Brandon, but there are a number of little matters that a lad should learn to determine for himself. Let us ask Edgar if he would like to go. Don't say anything for or against. For once let the boy exercise his choice and have the freedom of his own will. You may reverse his decision afterwards if you see fit. Mrs. Holmes assented to this, but with some fear and trembling. Edgar was called in, and his uncle kindly and fairly made him the offer. The lad hesitated, looked at his mother, then at his uncle, then at the floor. "'What do you think I should do, mamma?' said he. 
"'Your mother wishes you to make your own choice,' said Brandon. "'Then I think I should like to go with you, Uncle Walter.' "'No, no, I cannot part with you, my dear boy.' "'Nonsense, Fanny. Do not stand in the boy's light,' said Brandon, a little ruffled at being taken at his word, and the lad's decision reversed by his mother. "'I don't want to go if you do not wish it, mamma. said Edgar, looking rather ashamed at his choice. "'Consult our mother and Mary on the matter, Fanny. I believe they will be more reasonable.' The advice of both grandmother and aunt was to the effect that Mrs. Holmes should take advantage of her brother's kindness, and entrust Edgar to his care. It was not without a great effort that she made up her mind to part with her son, and she had many serious compunctions of conscience afterward, but as his letters home were regular and very prettily expressed, and as his uncle Walter generally added a few lines to say that the boy was doing remarkably well, and growing strong and large, she took comfort, and hoped that all was for the best." Brandon was rather surprised at the cool reception he got from Harriet Phillips on his return. It was a relief to him to see that she could part with him without regret, for he felt none at leaving her. He had been putting on his Australian set of feelings, and preparing to like the bush life very much, as he had done in reality before. He had Edgar with him when he came to bid the Phillipses good-bye, and Emily was much amused at the idea of this model lad going out to Melbourne in a large ship, and seeing dear Weary Wilta before she could do so. She gave him messages to some of the people, and desired him to inquire after the welfare of her pet opossum and her rose-crested cockatoo, and write her a full, true, and particular account of them all, and of how he liked the colony, which Edgar readily promised to do. "'And so this Mr. Hogarth has left London, Emily?' said Mr. Brandon. "'Oh, he has gone home to see about getting into Parliament. What stupid work it must be!' "'Don't talk so absurdly,' said Aunt Harriet." I see by the newspapers that he is likely to be put up, and you think it's stupid work, Emily, do you? You are a young lady of taste. I think the same. He is quite sure of success, said Harriet Phillips, who thought the question and remarks might have been addressed to her, as the best informed person in the house. Miss Melville will be pleased at her cousin's going into the political line, said he. Indeed, we are all pleased. I never saw any one so fitted to shine in Parliament, said Harriet. He has promised, when the election is over, to visit papa. Their politics will suit, I think. And how is Miss Melville? asked Brandon. Quite well. She is always well, but we have been very much troubled about servants of late. I believe really that all the good servants have gone to Australia, for we cannot hear of a housemaid or nurse to suit us, and it puts every one about. I know it annoys me, and Miss Melville, who holds rather a singular combination of employments, and I must say that she certainly discharges both of them extremely well, is particularly engaged just now, making up her housekeeping books. And how is Miss Alice Melville? She is not so invariably well as her sister is. No, she mopes more. She has not half the spirit of Miss Melville, but I believe she is quite well just now. Well, said Brandon, with a half-sigh, I have come to bid you all good-bye. No one can tell when we may meet again." "'Oh, no fear,' said Mrs. Phillips. "'We will see you here again in a year or two. Mr. Phillips is often grumbling about his affairs, but I know it just ends in nothing.' "'By the by, Emily,' whispered Brandon, "'you promised, if I was a good boy, that you would give me a great treat. You will never have another opportunity.' "'Oh, yes,' said Emily. "'I recollect quite well. Come along with me.' And Brandon followed the child to the nursery. Elsie was singing something to a tune that sounded like that of Chevy Chase, a great favourite with Brandon in his childhood, but she caught the sound of footsteps at the door and stopped abruptly. "'This is our nursery,' said Emily. "'Mamma said it is far better than the old one at Riwilta, but I do not like it half so well. 
"'I have brought Mr. Brandon here, Alice, to hear your songs and your stories, as I promised him the night you would not sing in the drawing-room when he asked you.' "'Go on, Miss Alice, I beg of you. Do not let me interrupt you. Indulge me for once. That old air carries me back many years,' said Brandon. "'Oh, no,' said Alice. "'I could not venture on a stanza before you. You cannot imagine what a doggerel I make to please the children.' "'It is not doggerel, it is beautiful,' said little Harriet. "'It is the best song of all, and the newest, the one that Alice has made about the fire when we were such tiny babies, and how poor Mamma was so weak and ill, and Papa was away, and the flames were all around, and Peggy and Jim—you recollect Jim, Black Jim, Mr. Brandon, and Mrs. Tuck, Martha, you know, were working so hard to save us, and then, when Mr. Brandon came up on his horse, Cantab—we told Alice his name was Cantab, she knew all the rest of the story, and rode so fast and got off in such a hurry, and fetched water and quenched the fire. Oh, Mr. Brandon, it is a lovely song. And all made up after our talk of old times the other night, for I thought it was just the thing for a ballad, and Alice will do anything I asked her. You see that we will make a hero of you, and we will sing this song in your praise when you are far away, said Emily. That I am not to be forgotten, said Brandon, speaking to Emily, but looking very hard at Elsie. I do not wish to be forgotten by any one here, but I do not care for being remembered as a hero, which I do not deserve to be, but as a—a a friend. Our friends here have been so few that we are not likely to forget any of them, and with Emily beside us we stand a good chance of hearing your name frequently," said Elsie. "'And you made a song about me—actually about me,' said Brandon, looking as if he wished the five young Phillipses out of the way. "'Oh, Alice can make a song about anything,' said Constance. "'She made one about my little kitten. "'And such a nice one about my humming top. "'How it goes whiz, whiz,' said Hubert. "'And Peggy told Alice and Miss Melville all about the fire, "'and all about you long ago, long before she saw any of us,' said Emily. "'She made up a pretty story to amuse them, "'just as Alice does for us when they are sad and dull. "'Only Peggy's story was all true, and Alice's are mostly not.' Brandon's quick eye could observe the faintest additional flush pass over Elsie's already crimson cheek, and guessed that Peggy's revelations had been a little too true and minute. What motive had she to conceal anything about him when she was relating her own experiences to divert the minds of the two poor girls in their troubles and perplexities? Was this the solution of his refusal in the railway carriage? If it was, he should try again. He had been a fool, an idiot, to give up so readily at the first naysay. Now it was too late. His passage was taken out for himself and Edgar, and he was to sail on the morrow. But if things looked decently well at Barragong on his return he must write, though he was no great scribe. "'Shall I not call Jane?' said Elsie, who felt embarrassed by his looks and manner, and dreaded his saying anything particular before a group of the sharpest children in the world. "'She is extremely busy, but if you have come to bid her good-bye, she must see you for that.' "'You used to talk of going to Australia, to Melbourne, I mean, with your sister and Peggy, when she returns.' "'We hope to be able to do so,' said Elsie. "'Then I will see you again. I must see you again. Don't call your sister yet. Don't.' Here Brandon was interrupted by the entrance of Miss Harriet, whose curiosity as to where Emily had taken her friend had led her to the nursery, a place she seldom visited. "'Why, Emily, what a thing to bring Mr. Brandon into the nursery! You are a dreadful girl!' I must tell Miss Melville of this. "'I have only come to bid good-bye to some friends,' said Brandon. 
They should have come to you in the drawing-room, only these children are so fond of their liberty that they prefer the nursery, where they can torment Alice to their heart's content, to anything like restraint in the drawing-room. What a litter the place is in! I do wish we could get a nurse. I must see Miss Melville, too, and bid her good-bye, said Brandon. She is in the housekeeper's room, said Harriet. As you have been introduced by Emily into the nursery, perhaps you will let me take you there. Good-bye, then, Miss Alice, said Brandon. "'Good-bye,' said she. Brandon could not drop a word of his intention to Jane, for Harriet Phillips was at his elbow when he made his adieu, but somehow Elsie treasured up his parting looks and embarrassed expressions with as much fidelity as if he had made an open declaration of love. Many a woman's heart lives long on such slight food as this. And the next day Brandon was on board, and soon on the high seas, on his way back to his sheep stations and his troubles. End of Volume 2, Chapter 13